0: Hey everybody, welcome to today's show. It is an exciting day. It's not every day we get to chat with a brilliant mind from Harvard University. Uh, we are chatting with our good friend, Professor Avi Loeb. We're going to ask him about the Galileo Project, the extraterrestrial hypothesis and all kinds of uh, astrophysics and astrobiology and all the, all the deep stuff. But we're going to break it down. And Avi is always very good at making it uh, easy to digest. Probably should become a professor at some point in his life, maybe. So, uh, get that uh, comfy chair, get the coffee rocking, and welcome to today's episode of Quantum Ladder Podcast. Welcome back to Quantum Ladder Podcast. My name is Louis Borges. Joining me today, my good friend and co-host, Marquise Williams. How you doing, buddy?
1: I'm doing great, man. It's going to be an awesome show again, again.
0: Absolutely. We're very blessed. Uh, We reach out to these big name people. We come across as, you know, humble guys, just really want to pick your brain for an hour or so. And these people are nice enough to grace us with their time, especially somebody like Avi, super busy. He's doing news programs and, you know, Uh, major, major publications. And we're uh, a Canadian guy and an American guy that just loves science. And uh, he was kind enough to give us uh, his time this afternoon or morning or wherever in the world you're listening. So uh, if anybody doesn't know, Avi Loeb is a Harvard University, the former head of astronomy. He's the Frank Baird Jr. Professor of Science at Harvard, uh, head of the Galileo Project, director of the Institute for Theory and Computation, best-selling author, and he's written over like a thousand science papers. If you go on his blog, it's literally like the 13th, the 14th, then the 16th, then the 19th. This guy never stops. He is a machine, and uh, we really like chatting with him. So warm welcome to the show, our good friend, Professor Avi
2: Loeb. It's a great pleasure to join you. We could have saved some time if you referred to me as a curious farm boy. I was born on a farm. I'm curious. Other than that, nothing is necessary.
0: I love that. I love the level of humility that you have. And some people, you know, these things you can, you can sort of see a lot of big names did a couple of shows early on. And then they started to develop a little bit of an ego. Next thing you know, they're like charging you to show up on your podcast. And you've never done that. You've always just been about the data. Some people give you a hard time because you're not quick to just say, Oh, maybe it's exotic physics. Yeah, great. We're all happy now. No, well, no. Um, it says if we cannot see it and there is not you know proof of this, don't go there. Now you also believe, and I think a lot of people like to contrast, last week we had Lawrence Krauss, he's very anti alien, anti religion, yeah. and he'll debate that at length. And that's that's fine. Everybody has an opinion, but I think it's good to have a healthy balance of what we know and what we don't know. Like let's not right. get too much into the oh, there's no way.
2: How do we really know? well uh, you know um the problem is that common sense is not common exactly and uh, what common sense says is before you have an opinion you better look at the reality that surrounds you (laughs) i mean you better get informed about it and unfortunately people prefer the lazy option which i guess is what uh, lawrence is also adapting he has an opinion and that uh, you know saves him a lot of time he can appear on shows and express this opinion However, I prefer to take the difficult task of collecting evidence. And, you know, it took us months and we can talk about it to go to the Pacific Ocean after the materials from the first interstellar meteor. We collected them. We were two weeks on a ship, brought them to Harvard University, analyzed them for several months and submitted a scientific paper for publication. That's not an opinion. This is collecting data. That's the scientific method. And I had to encounter a huge amount of pushback. And you ask yourself why Uh, just the fact that i wrote 43 diary reports during this expedition uh, was uh, upsetting to some scientists they said why do you communicate with the public well the answer is simple first of all the public cares about the detective story they want to see how science is done they don't want to be lectured about the results which is the uh, preferred path that most scientists take because they have some sense of superiority, intellectual superiority, relative to the public. I don't feel that way. I feel as a member of the public that was given the privilege of collecting the evidence. So I'm not expressing an opinion ahead of time. I just want to see what the data shows me. And I'm curious, you see, if you if you find the first interstellar objects over the past decade and two out of three appear to be unlike the rock that we have seen before, you know, in the solar system, uh, then it makes me curious. Maybe they are uh, packages that were manufactured by other civilizations. Why not check? Why be so hostile? Uh, just saying that you don't believe that you believe that we are the smartest. You know, on Friday, just a um, couple of days ago, I, ha- um, I I love chocolate. That's my favorite. You know, I, I- I'm addicted to chocolate. I'm a chocoholic. So uh, when a bunch of uh, Harvard uh, students in philosophy invited me. Uh, to speak with them. Uh, They wanted to speak about uh, extraterrestrial ethics, what to do when we find extraterrestrials, you know. And uh, I said, under one condition, if we go to my favorite chocolate store, Uh, and so we went there, (laughs) I got my chocolate. As soon as the server brought my chocolates, uh, they immediately cashed in on their part of the deal. And they asked me, (laughs) uh, how should we apply ethics an encounter with extraterrestrials. You know, these are students, and I like students because they are young, they they are not attached as much to their ego, uh, they're willing to learn, okay? So the problem with the experts is they're not not willing to learn. I mean, obviously, Lawrence knows already the answer, so he doesn't want to learn. He says, I know the answer, I'm not interested in checking. Uh, Anyway, but the students want to know, so uh, we talked about it, and uh, I explained to them that You know, it's uh, um, obviously ethics applies to humans. You know, that's what we are used to. And um, uh, unfortunately, you know, obviously, if we look around at the restaurants at Harvard Square, you know, on the menu of these restaurants, you find the animals that we consider less intelligent than we are. You know, we put them at a lower level than we are. So we eat them. That's a fact. I mean, you can look at the menu and you will see chicken. You you will see cow. Um, Anyway, so... um, if we ever uh, encounter, you know, some uh, flesh and blood, extraterrestrial flesh and blood, you know, like, for example, extraterrestrials on a spaceship that crashed on Earth, uh, would we eat them? Uh, and uh, <laughs> so, um, you know, if they, are, if they appear to be intelligent, obviously not. Right. So. Um, but and, and so the students were really shocked by the example that they gave. They couldn't really speak for a few minutes. Uh, I, I, so, I said to them, look, this is a, an academic exercise. Don't worry about it. I tried to relieve their mental stress. You know, they were very upset. Uh, I said, don't worry about it. Most likely we will encounter technological gadgets. You know, these would be A.I. astronauts. You know, the, uh, uh, they, they would have a, a brain that is artificial, A.I., Uh, And um, uh, just because they have to be autonomous, they cannot wait for guidance from their senders that are thousands of light years away. You know, it takes a long time for the signals to go back and forth. So they will have an AI brain. And then the question of whether we eat them or not is irrelevant. Uh, But the question is what kind of, uh, you know, how should we treat AI? And that is already relevant now that we have chat GPT getting better and better, you know, how to treat it. Uh, and my view is that as soon as it becomes um, sentient, you know, just like us, uh, we should treat it with respect because uh, unplugging it from the wall or or banning uh, the development of AI would be similar to uh killing a person or banning having children, you know, like that. That would be in a way similar because these are sentient beings, I don't care if they're made of silicon chips or of flesh and blood. Um, and then um, you know so the the students said yes that and and so the discussion went around ai but i do think we will get a glimpse at our technological future if we encounter extraterrestrials and uh, obviously uh, we are talking about ai we have to treat it with um, respect and um, you know we have to search for it and, and uh, you know obviously there could be a lot of space trash that's uh, technological gadgets that are not working anymore uh just like the, the ones that we send to space that will exit the solar system there are five probes like that and they will not be functional they will be just like plastics in the ocean they keep accumulating so we are polluting our interstellar space but there could also be visits by functioning devices and you know we better check out and that's what I'm doing with the Galileo project
1: I I thought of so many things while you were so The couple of things that came to my mind um there's there's two two things and I know I don't know if you're a movie guy but probably not I'm assuming Ender's game in the Arrival the movie Arrival um Ender's game where you have this alien civilization that comes here and wants resources doesn't realize we're here, and then we get into a war with them. But as a consequence, we win. They go home, and we go follow them to, to de- annihilate them out of fear. So fear could drive us to do something really stupid. And although the scientific community would make better decisions, well, we don't. We don't base our civilization uh, and the decisions of our civilization off of the scientific community. We do it based off politicians. So that's a concern. And with the arrival, a very similar thing is the military, where aliens come and they and they communicate with us about the future because they see things differently. Um, and instead of using what the scientists wanted to do by communicating and understanding their language and, and th- developing a relationship, which is kind of what you know, we should do, um, we get scared, fear again, and we attack them. Uh, somebody, a rogue element of the military attacks them. So even if this, the power structures don't do something, there's a, there's a possibility that somebody who is uh, able to, if we ever encounter aliens, cause a conflict by you know, out of fear as well. So, right what do you think about
2: that yeah so uh well first of all i should say that the producer of arrival is working with me on a documentary about my research that's so that's uh um, dan Levine, and i'm really happy to work with him um and uh, uh, with respect to um any encounter that we have my guess is that they are far more advanced than we are if they arrive to our doorstep long before we arrive to their doorstep okay and uh, the reason is simple most stars are billions of years uh, older than the Sun. I mean, if you look at the star formation history of the universe, uh, we know that most stars like the Sun formed billions of years earlier, and that's plenty of time to traverse the entire Milky Way galaxy from side to side with the chemical rockets that we launched. And um, it also gives them an advantage of being more developed than we are, so that I don't think we pose a risk. It's, It's more of an opportunity for us to learn from them. Uh, and um, I, I think it's uh, an adventure. So the thing that we are doing is having an opinion. There are lots of people who are skeptics, especially within the academic community, like Lawrence that you spoke with. Uh, And uh, they just say extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence, but uh, in fact, they're not seeking any evidence. So obviously, I mean, we know from dating, if you're not looking, you're not find anyone. And um, you know, in this case, they're not even checking out of the window to see if they have a neighbor. Uh, They just have an opinion that we are alone or that it's uh, extraordinary enough to think that something like us exists. I say it's very arrogant to think that way. Uh, because, uh, you know, we, I don't think we are the pinnacles of, of creation. You know, if you just look around, you know, we have two wars. We are very much entrenched in uh, animalistic uh, uh, motives, you know, like uh, uh, tribal motive. We, we associate ourselves with a tribe and then we attack other tribes that believe in different things. And, and that's a very uh, prevalent tendency. You see it all the time. You see it on social media, you see it in politics. And it's really unfortunate because that's not an intelligent way to behave uh, especially when you have science and technology that that are not a zero-sum game you know in uh, when we were in the wild there were limited resources so we had to fight for them and that's where the zero-sum game approach came from and that's why if one tribe uh, won the resources another one lost them and it includes land and we still fight over land so uh, in the modern world, you know, when you have science and technology, everyone can benefit from new knowledge. And if we only learn how to share things with each other, we could all work together. Because what, one thing I found on, in the Pacific Ocean when I looked at the team, the research team around me, is that um, we are all in the same boat. Everyone worked together for the success of the mission. And it's a metaphor for us living on Earth because you can think of Earth as a boat, sailing in interstellar space and we are all on it and it's really ridiculous if you look from a distance uh, to see people fighting uh like you don't see the Ukraine Russia border from the distance of the moon I mean there are images of the earth it's not it's insignificant it's ridiculous because the earth is a small rock that was left over from the formation of the sun if you just think about it there is much more real estate in space And we keep focusing on what happens on this rock, on a small part of the rock and fight with each other. Uh, I mean, that's not very intelligent. And the question is, how do we get out of it? Uh, One possibility is to get a wake up call. That's what I'm working on. Trying to find a letter in our mailbox that tells us look this is ridiculous what you're doing uh we figured out how to survive longer and here is what you need to do I really wish to have a love letter like that from another civilization so I'm checking you know objects near Earth that may have arrived from uh, those uh, more advanced civilizations Uh, another one is to start getting AI into our future in the sense of um, um, trying to make systems that will help us be better it's uh, sort of uh, like if you have a pain and it bothers you, but then you take aspirin and, or, or you take something else that helps you. Um, and uh, uh, so if AI in principle can uh, compensate for our weaknesses, because just as an example, suppose there is an object that doesn't look like rocks, it's unfamiliar, but then you write about it, you say, well, maybe it's a technological gadget uh and let's call hypothetically this object with a weird name we will say okay let's call it omuamua and you just notice that it's not like rocks it, it it has a very extreme shape uh it's pushed away from the sun without having any evaporation like a comets do and so what would an ai system say it will say no it doesn't look like the rocks we had seen in the solar system uh, we should look collect more data what would astronomers say astronomers would say no it's a rock of a type that we've never seen before it may be uh, maybe there is a cometary tail that is not visible to us it's sort of like saying an elephant is a zebra but you can't see it's right okay uh, or um, to say the elephant shows its stripes um, and it is a zebra only when you look away from it which are statements made about the actual object, Oumuamua, uh, by astronomers. And it's not just that object. It's the meteor that came from interstellar space in 2014, almost four years before Oumuamua. And uh, I just went to the Pacific Ocean, as I mentioned, to collect materials from this interstellar meteor. On the day that I came back from the expedition that lasted two weeks, there was a scientific paper published by experts on... Stones coming from the sky, meteors. And those experts say, um, well, we don't believe the data must be wrong. Even though it was collected by the U.S. Space Command, we think that it's wrong because it doesn't fit our model for stones. And I call that the stone age of science, where everything in the sky must be stones. The point is, if it doesn't fit your model, you should be curious. You should say, okay, well, let's check what it is. And here, Avilov went and spent two weeks. Let's see what he finds. Instead, they say, oh, this Avilov will not find anything. He didn't actually find anything. And moreover, the U.S. Space Command doesn't know what they are speaking about because we cannot fit the data with a model for stones. Therefore, this data must be wrong. And that was this arrogant point of view of those experts. And, uh, you know, to me, it's just a violation of the code of science. They're not willing to learn. They have an opinion, a very strong opinion. So how can you claim to protect science by expressing opinions rather than respecting data? I mean, if you don't respect data, and by the way, the U.S. Space Command, they get more funding than NASA because they are supposed to alert the U.S. president for any ballistic missile coming from North Korea. So dismissing what they say based on the fact that your model for stones does not fit the data That's extremely arrogant and inappropriate, given that the U.S. Space Command issued a formal letter to NASA stating that this was an interstellar meteor. So all I'm saying is there are a lot of people within academia that are not curious on purpose. They don't want new knowledge. And that's unfortunate because you would expect, you know, blue sky research, open thinking to be prevalent in academia. That's the the whole idea of a tenure system is to allow people not to worry about their job prospects. You know, exploring the unknown, taking risks. But not only that they don't take risks because they have an opinion, they try to push back and suppress any innovation that goes uh, against what they believe in. And that I find very dangerous because when young people see that, they say, I don't want to do science. Or they say, I will obey, you know, I will dance to the tunes of those senior people in order to get a job. And that's even worse, because what you end up with are these echo chambers. And you, you then wonder, why is science not delivering exciting new discoveries? Well, part of it is because of this mentality.
0: Yeah, I got yeah, it. very That's well said. I just wanted to ch- I have a little video clip here. It was an interview you did with Australian News just talking about the Galileo Project, just so we don't have to. Sur- it was very well summarized by you. Um, but I, I feel like I've been along for the ride because the first time I interviewed you was before you had the funding. You had this idea, you know, this weird rock had broken up over the ocean north of Australia. And then the second time I interviewed you, you're like, yeah, we just got like a million and a half U.S. private money. We're going to go do this. And then I was following your blog and, you know, all your journal entries as you were doing it. I'm like, this friggin' guy is not sitting in an office, uh, you know, at Harvard somewhere. He's out in the middle of the ocean, boots on the ground, trying to actually make this happen. So kudos to you for doing that. And uh, I've got a short clip here just so that our audience is aware of what the initiative was of doing the whole uh, ocean expedition. So take a look.
3: Leaves, a meteor that crashed off the coast of Australia nearly a decade ago may
2: actually be an alien spacecraft. Oh, wow!
3: Astrophysicist R.V. Loeb is planning a 2.2 million dollar expedition to retrieve the mysterious object and he's hoping it might help answer whether we're alone or not in the universe. Joining us now is astrophysicist and Harvard professor himself, Avi Lowe. Good morning to you. What do you expect to find off Australia's northern
2: coast? Well, uh, the meteor was discovered in uh, 2014 by the US government uh, about 100 miles off the coast of Papua New Guinea. And the material of it uh, is tougher than iron based on the data. So the question is whether it's just an unusual rock or perhaps a spacecraft from another civilization. Uh, I was able to receive full funding for this expedition uh, to Papua New Guinea, and we will scoop uh, the ocean floor and figure out the composition of the object. I already promised the uh, curator of the Museum of Modern Art in New York City that if we find any gadget, I'll put it on display there.
3: Oh! Hang on, that's Australian property. We might have something to say about that. Um, (laughs) Hey, uh, but at the time, US Space Command reported that it was just a meteor. Were they telling fibs? Uh, Because they've only recently come out and been more open about UFOs, haven't they?
2: Yes, they did. But in this case, um, it was uh, US government sensors that detected... Uh, an object that entered the atmosphere. They're monitoring the sky for any ballistic missiles, uh, for national Ah. security purposes. And they could just see a fireball and the speed by which the object moved. And that indicated that it came from outside the solar system. So they don't really know what it is and that's what we plan to figure out. Mm.
3: So do you believe aliens exist?
2: Oh, definitely. Uh, We now know that most of the stars, like the sun, formed the five billion years before the sun. So there was plenty of time for any civilization next to them. And there are tens of billions of them in the Milky Way galaxy alone. Uh, There was plenty of time for them to send probes that would reach us, even if they were propelled by chemical rockets. And out of cosmic modesty, we should assume that we are not the smartest kid in our cosmic neighborhood Mm -hmm. and we can learn from them. Uh, And uh, the only way to find out, this is not a philosophical question, we just need to look up and down as well in the ocean floor.
3: (laughs) What what would an alien look like? Is there any movie you think has got close? Do they look like E.T. or...
2: Did no, you no. Um, um, you know, travel through interstellar space would be very difficult for biological creatures. We were designed to survive on the on a rock like the Earth uh, by natural selection, but. Uh, artificial intelligence systems could in principle navigate through space uh, for a very long time and they could survive the hazardous conditions of interstellar space so the way i imagine it is some equipment that is far more advanced than what we possess because they had more than a century to develop Uh their science and technology and you know we would we could learn from that Uh, it would give us a a sort of a, a sense of what our future might be like
3: okay Gee, okay. Well, like a flying robot. Hey, when you arrive, we'll, uh, we'll chat again
2: as, you, as yeah, you're I'll be delighted to let you know what we find. Cool. Yes.
0: So what did you find? Let's talk about the results of your expedition.
2: Right. So we found 700 spherols. These are molten droplets from the surface of this meteor. And uh, we found them concentrated. Uh, along the path of the meteor, which we were able to pinpoint using uh, data from a seismometer on Manus Island in Papua New Guinea. So a seismometer measures the sound coming from the explosion and because the speed of sound is a million times slower than the speed of light, uh, there is a delay, just like the delay between a thunder that you hear and the lightning that you see. And uh, based on that delay, knowing the speed of sound, we could pinpoint how far away the explosion was and, and go there and we found the concentration of spherules, And we also found a special type of spherules that are made uh, of a material composition that is very different from uh, solar system materials. Uh, uh, by, uh, for some elements, they are more concentrated in, that, in those spherules that we found near the meteor path Um, The concentration of beryllium, for example, or lanthanum or uranium uh, was uh, hundreds of times more than the standard abundance in solar system materials, the standard composition of um, the rocks that made up the the solar system. So so we think it came from outside the solar system based on the composition, this object, Uh, but... um, We can't uh, tell whether it was natural or artificial because we collected tiny uh, metallic marbles that are less than a millimeter in size uh, that were molten uh, melted from off the the surface. Uh, And uh, therefore, we need another expedition to find bigger pieces. And we hope to do that. Uh, And of course, if we find a big piece of the object, we can tell whether it's a rock or maybe a technological gadget because a gadget might have buttons on it or uh, evidence that it was artificially made and of course uh, i asked students in my class uh, whether we should press a button if we find a, 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 such a, a, an artifact and half of the class said no way don't do that because it will risk all of us uh, and the other half said please do because we are very curious to know what would happen and uh, then a student asked me, given the split vote, what would you actually do, Professor Loeb? And I said then, uh, I will take it to a laboratory and examine it before engaging with it, so you don't need to worry.
0: Very smart. Now, was the initial, I guess, um, motivation of this to find something like a muamua? Like, you know, it's we know it's not a rock. It behaves differently from most comets or asteroids. So was it to try to get a unique meteor that nobody ever had? Or was it explicitly with the intent of, we think this could be technology from another civilization?
2: Well, this object was very different from Oumuamua uh, in the sense that um, uh, it was anomalous in different ways. I mean, it was moving. Faster than 95% of the stars in the vicinity of the Sun uh, relative to the local frame of the Milky Way galaxy and um, It was moving at 60 kilometers per second based on the speed that was measured by the US government uh, satellites and um, So that is unusual because if it were to come from a star It would inherit the motion of the star and here it was moving at the you know at the top 5% of the velocity distribution of stars near the Sun and uh, moreover the object disintegrated uh, only under very extreme stress in the lower atmosphere of the earth and uh, that suggested that it's made of some material that is even tougher than iron meteorites uh it was tougher than uh, all the space rocks cat- catalogued by nasa over the past decade 272 of them and so uh, uh it raised the possibility that it could be a Voyager-like meteor, where if you imagine our own probe leaving the solar system and colliding with an, an exoplanet that uh, resembles the Earth, it would appear as a meteor in the sky of that planet uh, of uh, unusual material strength because it's made of some artificial alloy and uh, also of unusual speed because it was propelled artificially. And so that's, that was, for me, a, a major motivation to check what this object is. Um, Now, in terms of a natural origin for the composition that we found, there is, I actually wrote a paper a couple of weeks ago explaining a possible natural origin for that uh, composition, and it has to do with uh, lava ocean or magma ocean that uh, uh, may exist on some planets near uh, the most common types of stars, uh, dwarf stars. So if a planet like the Earth comes very close to a dwarf star that is a tenth of the mass of the Sun, uh, it could get uh, ripped apart uh, into a stream of uh, rocks. Uh, we call it uh, spaghettification. You make yeah. a spaghetti out of a, a, a planet like that. The, the, the Sun cannot do that, by the way, because the Sun is not dense enough. The Sun is uh, less dense than rock. But um, if you consider a star that is a tenth of the mass of the Sun, uh, it's actually a hundred times more more dense than the sun. And um, such a star can, uh, which is very common, can in principle turn the earth into a stream of rocks. And we calculated that it would eject, such a disruption of a, a planet would eject half of the mass of the planet into interstellar space at the speed of typically 60 kilometers per second that was observed for this interstellar meteor. So there is away and and um, in principle it could have originated from such a such a natural origin but uh, we don't know we don't know what uh, the origin is we, we need more data but uh, obviously once again you know it's not a matter of opinion it's a matter of going there collecting bigger pieces and figuring it out and uh, among the rocks that we may find from interstellar space every now and then we could potentially find some something that was technological in origin, and I'm talking about space trash. I mean, both Oumuamua and uh, this meteor were not functional. I mean, they didn't really maneuver near Earth in ways that would indicate that they are functional. Uh, We we haven't seen any any such evidence. But uh, there could be a whole different class of uh, objects, and they are called unidentified anomalous phenomena by by the U.S. government, where we don't know what these objects are, and... The U.S. government cannot say for sure that they are um, human-made, they, they, they uh, consider the possibility of them being extraterrestrial. And that's why the Galileo Project built observatories. The first one, I should say, uh, was already built at Harvard University and it's operational, it's collecting data as we speak. And just uh, a couple of days ago, uh, I had a, a meeting with the team, the research team, where we discussed some very anomalous uh, signal uh, that the acoustic system uh, picked up uh, in sound and uh, so we are starting to get uh, interesting data now we are getting our hands dirty so to speak with data
1: so there's a lot in there's a lot in that i, I was curious about you know the james Webb telescope discovering that the, the universe could be twice as old um nearly twice as old. i i'm i don't understand why even put a number on it when i feel like the better our technology gets The more we discover that potentially the universe is not only older but stranger than we think it is given also that they discovered galaxies that don't operate the way they're supposed to and so forth so what do you think what do you think about or what do you have to say about um the possibility that we're just going to discover more and more things that are that are anomalous that are that are what we consider unnatural that are that shouldn't be um about other things including galaxies yeah so
2: i should say that um when the Webb Telescope was first designed, there was a science advisory committee that NASA established. I was on it. And uh, I was one of the first people to consider the nature of the first stars, the first galaxies. I wrote uh, two textbooks on that long before uh, there was a lot of interest. Uh, and that was in anticipation of uh, the Webb Telescope data. And so my textbooks are a decade old. Uh, you can find, I mean, one of them is called the uh how did the first stars form and uh, another one is uh, the first galaxies in the universe both by princeton university press and i wrote them a decade ago basically predicting what the web telescope might see and explaining it Uh, and indeed the the initial data that we have from the web telescope implies that uh, there is a population of very bright galaxies that is more abundant than we expected But it doesn't need, it doesn't require that the age of the universe would be longer. Uh, It it could be just that we don't fully understand the details uh, of galaxy formation well enough. So we just didn't model the way galaxies form galaxies like the Milky Way at early times. And uh, so that that is the preferred uh, interpretation that many people have, that that galaxies behave in ways that we did not expect uh, before web uh, data. And uh, um, so um, I wouldn't say there is any crisis at the moment uh, for the background cosmological model in terms of how old the universe is, because on that we have um, uh, a lot of other data that uh, is pretty consistent. Uh, I mean, there are some things that we don't fully understand. For example, the nature of most of the matter in the universe, eighty three percent of it is called dark matter, simply because we don't we don't know what it is. So we encapsulate our ignorance uh, by calling it dark matter. Uh, it's not visible to us, that therefore it's dark. And then there is also another constituent called dark energy, which is basically the mass density of the vacuum. Uh, we don't understand why it's not zero, why the vacuum has some mass density and it's uniform. It only matters for the expansion of the universe, which appears to be accelerating. So we don't understand that. And then there is another issue that the expansion of the universe today can be uh, measured in two different ways. One is to measure it today, exactly you know, the, uh, the speed and distance of, at which uh, um, the universe is expanding um uh for for sources like galaxies you see them receding away from us you measure the speed and you also measure the distance and that is giving us the hubble parameter the the ratio between the distance and the speed is um uh related to a constant that edwin hubble discovered it's called the hubble constant or hubble parameter so we can measure it today uh basically this the recession speed is proportional to distance and this constant, that the proportionality constant is something we can measure. Uh, But we can also calculate what it should be based on how the universe expanded in the past. And unfortunately, the two numbers do not agree to something at the level of uh, 5%, 5 to 7, um, maybe 7%, uh, depending on exactly which number you adapt. And so um, um, that is called the Hubble tension, which is unresolved and it may be that it signals uh, something that breaks down in our understanding of the universe or it signals uh Measurement errors that were not appreciated, that you know, the, the measurements are more uh, inaccurate than previously. But there, we are talking about an effect at the level of less than 10 percent, and the rest of the picture appears to be consistent between what we see when the universe was even 400,000 years old, less than a million years old. We can observe already images of the universe back then in the form of the cosmic microwave. That's how the universe looked like when that light. Uh, Was generated 400,000 years after the Big Bang, and we see the universe back then, and we can measure parameters of that universe. And within 10%, (laughs) they are consistent with what we understand about the universe today. So. So I would say that's an amazing triumph. That at least from 400,000 years after the Big Bang until today, we get a consistent picture to within 10%. You know that's an amazing success story. There may be something we don't fully understand about the intermediate times, and that's the reason for the Hubble tension. And then there is also the uh, more fundamental question: What is the universe made of? You know what is the mat- most of the matter in the universe? And you know it's possible that extraterrestrials know that. So if we ever meet them, I, you know, I, the first question that I want to ask them is, uh, w- what happened before the Big Bang? I want to know why the universe started from a state where that was extremely dense and hot, and then started expanding at some point in time in our past, 13.8 billion years ago. Uh, so they will hopefully know the answer if they had science for more than a century. We just had. Quantum mechanics, gravity—the theories that we use um, right now—only uh, for a century. So you know we're re- relatively uh, early in the process of figuring out what the universe is made of. Maybe they—they they know how the universe started. And then, uh, uh, of course, I will ask them what is the dark matter, dark energy. But finally, what I would like to know is uh, where is the uh, nearest uh, gathering of uh, scientists, extraterrestrial scientists? Uh, that we can mingle with. Uh, And I very much hope that these guys do not have an opinion. These guys are uh, evidence-seeking. They are looking for data. And so we can learn a lot from them, unlike conversations with people that have an opinion.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Very well said. And what I wanted to ask you sort of about techno signatures or biological signatures, if we are gonna set up sensors and try to see if there is life outside of here, what do you think the sensors would look like? Or what kind of data are we looking to glean to say that, hey, there's a good chance that there's some type of technology there or biological, you know, um, remnants or, you know, things in atmospheres, what do you think would be the can, best can way add, to try to find that?
1: Can I add to that real quick? Yeah. I'm sorry, because there was, there was, speaking of techno signatures and things that you would detect. There's also exoplanets that say that, that they were saying, um, have some kind of a, I don't know, substance or a chemical or whatever that's being detected that only is shown when there's life on planets, on a planet. Right. So just to add to that, um, I want right. to
2: Right. Yeah, that was the latest um, uh, data from the Webb Telescope on the composition of a, a planetary atmosphere. So the idea here, and by the way, this is a popular idea within the mainstream of astrobiology, the, the field that tries to look for biosignatures. Uh, and the, con- the consensus within that community is to look for primitive life, uh, microbial life, uh, because they think that this is um, this is more likely to exist. We don't know if there is intelligent life. They prefer to go first for the thing that occurred first on Earth. You know, For billions of years, we had primitive life before we had intelligent life. So um, the consensus is to check for the fingerprints uh, of uh, primitive forms of life. And I should say that it's not at all clear that it would be easier, even if Primitive life is more abundant than intelligent life. Uh, it, it, it may well be that it's easier for us to discover techno technological signatures before we find biological signatures. because if we find objects near Earth that uh, originated from far away and they were manufactured by some other civilization, you know that would tell us, Uh, that there is life out there, Uh, and it may be easier to figure it out as long as we search, as long as we look. Uh, Or um, uh, if we see, for example, um, uh, some uh, pollution, industrial pollution in the atmospheres of planets, it may be far more um, abundant than uh, markers of, uh, of primitive forms of life, much easier to detect um if the, if that civilization produced a lot of byproducts in the atmosphere, so so it's not at all clear to me that it's better to search for primitive life than intelligent life as the first uh, marker because uh, uh, intelligent life produces technologies that can make themselves much more easily detectable. Uh, but at any event, what the mainstream is searching is uh, evidence for abundance of elements or, molecules that are indicative of primitive life for example oxygen methane uh, and um, you know water molecules uh, uh, or co2 on other planets and of course finding all of them would be very challenging it's not clear that the web telescope will be able to do it Uh, the web telescope saw this uh, planet but actually when i speak with the People who are working on the interpretation uh, uh, the, the of the figure the virus molecules, they say that the detection was not really significant uh, in that case. So, so we don't have yet any clear uh, bio signature that people are um, discussing as credible. And uh, there was also, of course, uh, a discussion about uh, uh, Venus, uh, but. Uh, at the moment there is no consensus on on such a biomarker and the goal is to build future telescopes that will be able to find those um and so um i think it's it's good to go after those but it it may cost us billions of dollars to do it and the question is whether we should allocate a fraction of that towards the search for technological signatures and i i do believe in 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 the fact of spreading. Uh, the resources uh, in different ways because we never know what what is out there and in terms of searching for technological signatures you know we've been for 70 years we've been searching for radio signals we haven't found anything it's sort of like uh, sitting at home and waiting for a phone call and nobody may call you when you're listening uh you know 70 years is a very short time relative to the age of the universe one part in a hundred million less than that um and so uh uh, you know, another method is to look for objects, and that's a very different approach because uh, these objects uh, may be accumulating over time, over billions. Of, they don't escape the Milky Way galaxy because they're moving at a speed that is well below the escape speed uh, from the Milky Way, from the gravitational pull of the Milky Way. So they keep accumulating over time, and we just need to search for interstellar objects, uh, in particular te- of technological origin. And that's the path that I'm taking uh it's not the, it was not the practiced by the SETI community and moreover uh, ma- many members of the SETI community have uh, uh are are hostile to the idea they don't they ban any discussion about the search for objects near earth in their conferences which I find very strange
0: yeah so we are coming up on the halfway point of our show we're going to take our quick five minute break and uh, we'll be right back with the second half of avi Loeb right here on quantum ladder podcast. And we are back with the second half of Quantum Ladder Podcast. We're joined by the brilliant Avi Loeb today. He's got all the right answers for all the big questions. And uh, we were chatting about techno signatures and signs of life. And uh, it kind of brought something to mind. I wanted to ask you about non-carbon life. Is such a thing possible? Could it exist? And how much harder does that make it to find? Because we are carbon-based, so we're naturally looking for what is like ourselves. What if it's not even anything remotely close to what we are?
2: well it's quite possible that's why we shouldn't imagine necessarily how it looks like it's you know it's if you go on a date it's much better not to imagine the partner based on what you see in the mirror uh because uh, if you just imagine what you see in the mirror it's not such a great date <laughs> so <laughs> i mean it's better to find something better than you are right uh, to attach yourself uh and so um the way i see it is Obviously, you know, we don't know um, if uh, biology has only one uh, uh, attractor, one one type of uh, path that it can take, uh, since we have only one data point here on Earth. Uh, And the first thing to check once we find life elsewhere is whether it's made of the same uh, DNA structure that our life, life as we know it is made of, uh, and also has the same chirality, you know, because that may imply either that there is one preferred uh life uh form of life or that life was transferred you know the uh, there were rocks exchanged between mars and the earth uh early on and one of them was analyzed uh, about uh, 40 years ago and uh, it was realized that the rock was not heated uh, to more than uh about um, uh 40 degrees celsius above absolute zero so Uh, any microbial life inside the rock in the core of the rock could have been preserved during the ejection from mars and the landing on earth uh, which is remarkable and um, it's possible that life was delivered to earth and we are all martians and in fact microbes uh, uh, made already the trip that elon musk is dreaming about he wants to go back to uh, mars but they made it to earth Uh, billions of years ago these tiny astronauts uh, much more accomplished than he is. Uh, and uh, uh, so, uh, you know, it may be worthwhile uh, uh, checking what uh, is in rocks that arrive from Mars or vice versa. And uh, we, uh, one way to tell if there was exchange of life forms is if life is of the, exactly the same, uh, has the same molecular patterns as, as we have here on Earth. Uh, but beyond that, I can imagine technological... Uh, imitations of life because what is life you know you basically what you need is a, a method to preserve information and then uh, uh, replicate it uh and make uh, many generations of the same uh, of copies and um you know that's something that uh, a combination of ai plus 3d printing can do for you mm-hmm. so uh we might be an intermediate step towards a future where ai plus 3d printers will make uh, Uh, you know systems that uh, are even better than we are and I have no problem with that Uh, you know I I'm proud of our technological kids uh, just the way I'm proud of my daughters uh, whom I also don't understand uh, occasionally you know but it doesn't prevent me from being proud of what they accomplish so so I think as long as we train our AI to follow our guiding principles we uh, provide them with a blueprint, just like educating our children, you know, when they are young, um, perhaps they will bring us to a future where uh, something better than life is being done uh, by um, the machines, you know, Like, uh, it's not flesh and blood. And, you know, I, I have no, I'm not attached necessarily to the way that biology uh, is, is working. Uh, I don't think it's necessarily the best, the best way. Um, because it, 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 it it's believed to have originated randomly from a soup of chemicals. And if you just imagine, you know, a room full of chaos and, you know, the chance that you will find a meaningful uh, structure within it, uh, you know, and obviously if you find something uh, in it, uh, a room full of chaos, then it will not be the best that you can imagine out of a room that is designed and organized in a very... Uh, delicate fashion, so, and optimized. So so I am, um, and I say that from experience because I entered the rooms of my daughters uh, many mornings and saw chaos there. So,
0: <laughs> we uh, have daughters too, we get it. Yeah, we get it, we get
2: it. <laughs> yeah, so uh, I would argue that maybe even the future would be better than the past, okay? And mm. that's something we should look forward to and we can shape it. I have no problem with AIs taking many of the tasks that we are currently Uh, Task to to do and we are getting paid for. Um, I have no problem with that. We can take a vacation. I mean, what's the problem of having a more relaxed lifestyle, not competing uh, for resources all the time and uh, just enjoying what what you're doing? I mean, you don't need to be the best in the world. I mean, if AI is smarter than we are to do something, let them do it Uh, and we can relax and and, um, have our own hobbies. Uh, So I'm, I I don't, and also there was a lot of, uh, there were lots of people who uh, were worried about the implications of AI becoming uh, more sophisticated. And there was this letter that was signed for a ban for six months on development. I didn't really see any any value in that because what would change in six months? I mean, like, uh, why would we uh, be better equipped to uh, understand the implications of AI in six months? It's not clear to me. We we should uh, act like... um, um, responsible parents you know when you have a child you can't guarantee that the child will not become a criminal but you're, you're trying to improve the chances that the child will will uh, be good for society by educating the child by training it not exposing it to crimes and so forth uh and in the same way we can uh, make sure that our ai technological kids are well trained and uh, uh that's the the duty that we have and of course the government can be part of that we have uh, an education department for for you know our system and um so uh, and the legal system obviously should respond to this new technology uh and and they're very slow to make progress but but I don't think we should be worried about the technological future people are always very worried about the unknown instead we should try to shape it in a way that we would that would benefit us
1: I I am um obsessed with AI at the moment (laughs) in my life like obsessed and one thing that I think well there's a I'm trying to condense this here. Um, Mustafa Suleyman wrote a book called The Coming Wave, which I'm still going through right now a couple of times. I want to go over it a couple of times to fully understand. But the idea that and of course, Sam Altman's done this tour where he's going all over the place and asking people about their thoughts about AI and talking about the potential. They keep talking about the idea that it will revolutionize human civilization. Our, you mentioned about work being taken over, that you know, there will be intellectual tasks that are being taken over, like programming and office work or whatever. That we don't have to have anymore, and instead of it hurting people, it could just change the way that we live our lives, where we do things like, for example, uh, they mentioned that the the importance of human connection versus you know versus what you can do for like what you can produce. Where AI is producing for us, but we are we are now able to enjoy our life. Um, that's the potential for AI that I see. The only problem that I see is the government. I mean, it, the the idea that people are afraid of, of change especially of technology and what it can do and and about our lives being changed um i fear that the that they not that they don't want prosperity that they object or they they resist the idea of too much prosperity because they think it would ruin uh the human motivation i don't agree with that but that's my fear Uh, what do you think about that
2: yeah uh, i mean um i i i think we should uh, adapt to new technologies rather than resist them and Um, One complaint that I have, for example, about the humanities in uh, universities, they keep teaching uh, what ancient Greeks told us. Uh, And ancient Greeks didn't have computers. As as smart as they were, I mean, I really admire Aristotle, Plato, you know, but they didn't have any, (laughs) they didn't have chat GPT, okay? So they cannot really, I mean, the ethical rules that they develop, uh, these are humanities of the past, okay? And why do we keep teaching them Uh, and I can give you the example of Harvard University. You know, you you will not find an AI course within the philosophy department. And I think that's a big mistake. They keep complaining that humanities are marginalized. They don't get funding. There aren't many young people going to the humanities. Well, make the humanities relevant for the future of society. That's what we need. And we need, uh, you know, there are many questions about the ethics of uh, AI, about privacy, about... uh, Um, what kind of responsibility to give AI systems, how to train them. A lot of issues uh, that philosophers and psychologists can help with. Uh, By the way, uh, if we ever discover an extraterrestrial uh, probe that is equipped with AI, I don't think physicists will be uh, the best to analyze it. Uh, uh, Because um, if it's an intelligent system, we better use psychologists. They are used to uh, analyzing intelligent systems called humans. And it's not the same tools. You cannot analyze uh, humans the way you analyze atoms, molecules. You know, this is one thing that uh, a lot of physicists miss. Um, uh, For example, Steven Weinberg, who won the Nobel Prize in Physics, one of the most distinguished physicists of the 20th century, he wrote a book after uh, the first three minutes. And then um, and uh, in the, towards the end of the book, he says, the more uh, uh, we understand the universe, the more pointless it looks to us. And uh, I say, well, the reason it looks to you as pointless, uh, uh, Stephen and all other cosmologists, is because you focus on lifeless entities, elementary particles, radiation, things that do not have life, uh, they don't have thoughts, consciousness, and uh obviously you know if we were to find a partner i mean we know from our private lives that when we find a partner it gives a meaning to our existence a purpose to our life uh and so if we ever find an extraterrestrial partner out there another intelligent uh, civilization uh i think it will give a meaning to our cosmic existence we will not feel lonely anymore so uh, if i were a therapist of many of the cosmologists and they come to me and say, well, the universe appears to be so lonely and pointless to us. I would advise them to search for technological signatures, uh, because that may actually solve their problems. Uh, That's the way to find partners out there to give yourself some sense of where you came from, because they may have answers to big questions for which we don't have answers. They might even be able to create a baby universe in the laboratory, mm-hmm. uh, and if they do, that would answer where our universe came from. Maybe there was a scientist in a white uh, coat that uh, made up uh, the Big Bang, uh, and uh, we called it for uh, centuries. You know, we called this entity uh, the superhuman entity. We called it God, but in fact, it could be a scientist. So there is a way of merging science and religion by finding those much more advanced scientists that can produce miracles for us. You know, uh, in the Old Testament, in the Bible, there is a story about Moses who uh, um, was convinced that God exists, uh, a superhuman entity, after seeing a burning bush that was never consumed. Now, uh, today you can buy uh, off the shelf uh, gadgets that will look like a burning bush that is never consumed and put it in front of Moses and Moses would believe in God as a result. I mean, he would be with... Uh, and if I were close to Moses with the infrared sensors uh, of the Galileo project, I could have advised him whether uh, the, uh, what he's looking at is, is not technologically or uh, is natural or maybe there is some superhuman uh, origin for it. Uh, So what I'm trying to say is that uh, things that were attributed to God in the past may well be representations of a very advanced science. And uh, one way to find out is to discover them in the real universe, not in uh, old texts, not in philosophy books, actually looking around and searching for them.
0: Yeah. And now, do you think that AI could be used as a tool for that search, either to think of new ways or new types of signatures to find, or even just to get a, a feeble human brain around the idea of something as complex as what light beings may look like or what p- the potential of non human life may look like? Would AI help us with that?
2: Yeah, definitely. I mean, AI would be most uh, effective when we have uh, some, uh, if we interact or receive some signals, let's say, from Uh, a a technological gadget that was constructed by another civilization because uh, uh, if if there is an AI astronaut or AI brain behind that signal, then our AI systems can help us figure out uh, the extraterrestrial AI systems because they might even feel kinship um, to those systems more than to us because if those systems are also made made of silicon chips, You know, because physics is universal, Uh, they would resemble them better. And so I do think it's just like the approach taken by Alan Turing when he tried to break the Enigma code during World War II. He was using uh, uh, computers, but his task was uh, easier because the Germans, uh, you know, had a biological brain, the Nazis at the time, and and the British, he belonged to, to the British people, and also had similar brains. So it was easier to interpret what the Nazis are planning, you know, trying to communicate. Uh, Even though the code itself was difficult to break, uh, the computer helped break the code. Uh, For us, the challenge would be much bigger because we don't know if the senders of the AI systems that come from outside of this earth uh, actually have the same biological, you know, composition as we have. They may be very different because of a different natural selection uh, or a different environment. You know, we, we are next to a star like the sun. Most of the light is in the optical band. That's why our eyes are sensitive to the optical band. But um, you know, we, we already on Earth, you see a shrimp uh, that um, it, it has eyes that are sensitive to the infrared or the ultraviolet. Um, and, and that's the mantis shrimp. And uh, uh, you can imagine that on other exoplanets that are next to the most abundant stars, these are dwarf stars uh, that are emitting mostly in the infrared, they have maybe infrared eyes. And it's not clear whether if you, if you get your information through infrared eyes, are you, do you have the same cognition, mm-hmm. the same type of brain, the same way of thinking? So it may not be easy for us to interpret what they're thinking. And one way to make progress on this question of the relationship between environment or sensors, information that the brain gets and the cognitive abilities of the brain is to compare the mantis shrimp that has infrared eyes to a a shrimp that doesn't have eyes at all, that doesn't see anything. Uh, There there are shrimp, eyeless uh, shrimp, uh, in uh, very deep um, uh, volcanic, um, uh, you know, extreme environments. uh, uh, And so... uh, uh, we, we still don't understand how the ability of the brain uh, to digest information coming from sensors like the eyes translates into language and uh, the challenge would be to break a code that was produced by you know, some, some other entities that are not at all exposed to the same environment as we are and it may be a much bigger challenge but our computers are much better than Alan Turing's computers so maybe we, we, we will figure it out
1: yeah i was you mentioned earlier about the universe being made up of what 80 eighty eighty plus percent dark matter or dark energy or both and i thought to myself like what if what if they these non these aliens or extraterrestrials or whatever they are what if they function in this realm of dark matter what if they are there and so not only are they imperceivable to us or imperceptible but like we don't even have the instruments or the understanding of how to look for them so we're looking in not only are we looking in the wrong direction we're using the wrong tools and and it just it just there's just never a way to truly find them.
2: yeah that's an excellent point just think about the fact that most of the uh, liquid water uh, might be under ice you know you can imagine there are so many objects uh, far too far from the sun that have an icy surface uh, but a uh, a liquid water underneath uh, liquid, I mean, water oceans Uh, for, you know, Enceladus is one uh, example Europa is another and, you know, there are many more objects like that than objects in the habitable zone like the Earth, where you have liquid water on the surface. So, just imagine if there is life under the ice you know, that form of life uh, will not be able to see the stars if if the thickness of the ice is I don't know, hundreds of kilometers, you can't see through it, there is not much light around, it looks dark, Uh, and um, um, they will not have a concept of uh, breaking through the ice into the outside universe. Their universe would be just the liquid water that they are swimming in. Uh, uh, And uh, you ask yourself, okay, well, uh, we have eyes that were developed to, to detect the light produced by the sun, okay, and we develop our notion of the universe at large based on that uh those eyes okay and we we realize that 83 percent of the matter in the universe is not emitting that light it's not producing the the light that we can see from the sun so we are saying okay it's dark matter and we give nobel prizes to people who just measure how much dark matter how much dark energy there is in the universe We just, um, you know, uh, like accountants, we we say, okay, a a portion of our budget is allocated, in this case, a mass budget, is allocated to an entity that we don't understand at all. Is that a good account? I would say it's very depressing because it basically says that the accountant doesn't have any idea about what the money is being spent on. Like if someone comes to you with a budget and says, Okay, here is the most of the budget 83 percent, and I have no idea what it is about. You would say uh, you're fired, okay? Because uh,
0: (laughs) I need a new accountant. Uh,
2: and uh, on the other hand, if a scientist says I don't understand what 83 percent of the matter in the universe is, that scientist can get a Nobel Prize. So just think about it how, um, how I mean, we are really not modest, we are quite arrogant to think that these. Quantifications uh, that we make of the, of our ignorance are significant. In fact, it, they represent ignorance, and um, and so uh, the question is whether extraterrestrials figure it out. You know, for example, uh, if the dark matter is some substance that uh, you can use for propulsion, you know, that you can build a spacecraft that where you see no nothing coming from the exhaust. You know, if it's dark matter propelled. Uh, Another possibility is that there is no dark matter. It's just that gravity is not fully understood. We think that there is more matter based on gravity, but in fact, we don't understand gravity correctly. And there is this uh, idea of a modified uh, gravity model that would account for the dark matter in galaxies. Uh, It's called Mond. And I read the paper a year and a half ago saying if this model is correct, if indeed gravity is modified or inertia, the the law of inertia is modified, in fact, you can build a rocket that uh, doesn't doesn't need to carry much fuel. Uh, It can carry very little fuel and reach... Uh, close to the speed of light in principle. Um, And the reason is that inertia is being modified. So it could be that uh, another civilization figured it out and knows that at low accelerations, where we see evidence for the dark matter, at those low accelerations, you can build a rocket that will get to very high speeds with very little fuel. Um, And, um, uh, you know, we just don't know that. Now it's also possible that there is new physics in the way you know you can go from uh, uh, one point to another through some uh, tunneling through space time and people talk about wormholes and other things. Now we don't know if they exist, but we should not. Uh, we should stay agnostic, you know, and and just. So my approach is just to <laughs> within the Galileo project to look at the objects we see in the sky, okay, and um, not to assume anything, but simply. Uh, check if everything we see is birds uh, or balloons or uh, drones or airplanes or, uh, you know, things that we produced uh, or natural from Earth. And if we see something that is not familiar, that behaves in a very unusual way, you know, we should get more data on it. That's the way to learn something new rather than have an opinion like many people have. I mean, there are people who are skeptics, there are people who are believers, and the common thing between them is both have an opinion. But, you know, we've been in this, uh, you know, we've done that for many decades, we didn't make much progress because with opinions, you know, uh, you can't really tell what what is happening. And, you know, like, suppose um, you look at a soccer match and uh, one uh, team says there was a goal and the other team says there was no goal uh because it serves their interest how would you be able to tell well if the answer is simple you just put a video camera that records this game and fifa recognized that in the women's world cup right so they make their decisions based on what the video camera uh finds not on what the people involved are saying and so that's very simple and that's what science is all supposed to be about so when you interview someone who has a strong opinion uh you know they are basically objecting the approach that FIFA takes when deciding about a goal in the World Cup, uh, they just say, well, uh, I I know what's the answer and I don't need anything else.
0: Yeah. And on that, like, how do you think society, cultures, academia would change if, in fact, we do find extraterrestrial life? If that is, in fact, real, all the people that were debunkers or trying to just throw distraction and, and chaos into the topic, what do you think would happen sort of the day after we discover this?
2: Well, they will, dis- they will start claiming that they said it all along, okay? But uh, uh, I'm not too worried about it because my hope is that, uh, you know, even the work of professors will be replaced by AI, uh, that we will not need them to teach. Uh, and uh, uh, as a result, you know, all this uh, toxic uh, culture of resisting innovation which very surprisingly appears in academia right now, whereas in in the private sector, in commercial in the commercial sector, you have these uh, think tanks of people thinking uh, you know, um, uh, about the unexpected, uh, trying to consider, you know, blue sky concepts. I just find it very strange, I must tell you and uh, it all stems from the human ego. Uh, It all stems from people wanting to get uh, honors and awards and Creating uh, echo chambers, and it's really unfortunate because you know we. I thought we learned the lesson from uh, centuries uh, of uh, pursuing the scientific method, starting with Galileo Galilei. Uh, but and uh, unfortunately, we we did not. I should say um, the uh, last month there was a play presented uh, that was written by a playwright uh, from Los Angeles, Josh Ravetch. Uh, it was. Um, he plans to bring it to uh, Off-Broadway in New York City, and it was about my work. And so it, it was called, it's called The Piece of Sky. And um, one of the statements there, uh, which I very much resonates with, uh, is why is childlike bullying more prevalent than childlike curiosity? So that's uh, mentioned there, and the other thing I, I wanted to say is that students are so excited about this subject, uh, the research that I'm describing. Uh, just a few weeks ago, I came back from Italy, where 600 students voted, the, gave the um, the Cosmos Award uh, to my book, Extraterrestrial. Uh, and I was very honored by that because it came from students. I say, said it on stage. I said uh, that I'm uh, more honored to receive an award from students um, uh, than from uh, senior members of a selection committee. And there were senior members in the front row that looked very upset that I said that. Uh, but the reason I like students is because they have a fresh mind, they're open-minded and they really are excited about uh, the uh, you know taking risks and exploring. Uh, the unknown, and uh, if, you know, unfortunately, the pushback that such uh, studies get, you know, send a very bad message to to young people, and they basically tell them, you should not uh, deviate from the beaten path, uh, and unfortunately, you know, if you don't deviate from the beaten path, you will never find low-hanging fruits.
0: Very well said, and speaking of books, you've recently written a, uh, a new book, how many is that now? I
2: couldn't get a solid number online, it's a lot, Oh, uh, this is my ninth book, um, um, and uh, it's called The Interstellar. And it basically uh, discusses uh, the the impact that finding interstellar objects uh, from a technological origin will have on humanity. So this is how it looks, the book. It's beautiful. Beautiful. Yeah, very nice. Uh, Exactly what we discussed over the past hour.
1: Yeah, I got to say, I I did not fully appreciate just... The, the magnitude of what you say and how you say it, you are a, an excellent storyteller. First of all, I, I really respect and appreciate that because analogies are, to me, they're one of the most important ways to educate people and teach them about these complex ideas. You, you do a, a freaking fantastic job at drawing analogies on so many different things. I think it's amazing. And I did not appreciate, of course, your perspective about the whole non-human intelligence field, especially given that I have my own perspective and I let that cloud my judgment about what you do and what you say. I was wrong. I want to, I got to say this because I think people need to, to listen to your interviews, all of them, to get a full understanding of who you really are. And and I, I, I am, a, I'm glad that I'm a part of showing people who you really are. This conversation I think is, is more important than um than i than i would have ever imagined so um, i want to thank, thank you for thank you
2: so much it, it, it's really a pleasure speaking with you uh another thing i wanted to mention is uh, a story about uh, a fisherman you know there was a fisherman uh, that uh, claimed that uh, all fish it's the, he discovered the law of of nature all fish are bigger than an inch and uh, then someone uh, raised his hand, and uh, when he was uh, making the, a presentation about it, and asked, "What was the, uh, the the mesh size in your net? What was the size of uh, the holes in your net, the fishing net?" And uh, he said, "One inch."
1: Exactly. <laughs> You're literally blocking yourself from finding anything beyond what you've developed a, a, a mindset for essentially
2: exactly so we might be blind but you know we should at the very least we should uh, be seeking uh, searching for evidence rather than saying extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence and I say extraordinary evidence requires extraordinary funding and effort it's it's hard work it's not uh, as easy as having an opinion that's why most people don't do it but they should at least cheer when someone else is doing it you know uh, doing the hard work is 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 not easy uh and instead of pushing back against it uh they should be either you know waiting to see what the results are or uh cheering it uh and uh, i very much hope that that this will happen um i get a lot of pushback uh, um and you can read some of it uh, in a new york times magazine uh, profile that was about my work uh, Um, a a couple of months ago. And um, um, my approach is um, the same as the eagle. You know, the eagle sometimes has a crow on its back and the the crow pecks on the neck of the eagle. And instead of fighting with the crow, the eagle just rises to greater heights where the oxygen level is low, so the crow drops off, cannot survive. And uh, my hope is to the to go to the greatest heights in my profession which is doing the scientific method uh you know following uh, the evidence and uh to me um uh, i'm hoping that all the crows that are pecking on my neck will drop off some of them are quite stubborn i should say <laughs>
0: everybody has a motivation and you know especially the ufo community or people that claim to be part of such things it's becoming very divisive very polarized it's almost like a boys club on one end and you're either of one opinion of a certain camp or you're of an opinion of another one it's becoming a bit of a gong show to be totally honest we both come from different shows that were mainly in that industry and in that topic set but we are more scientific based and I, i i really admire the fact that you don't stop for every barking dog along yeah. the way, as Winston mm-hmm. Churchill said, right? right? You just focused right. on your target. You don't yeah. seek the acceptance of the popularity vote. You're just doing your thing. Yeah. You don't need government help. You get your own funding, your own censors. Exactly. Like you're, you're just going. You're and I think yeah. a lot of that is misguided, either jealousy or they don't fully understand. I think exactly. Exactly. they're trying to look and at I- you through their own spectrum of what their motivations are. And it doesn't make any sense why your behavior doesn't match what they would be doing but right. you're literally doing your own thing with your own motivations. Yeah. And that yeah, is where the that. divide is. Yeah. And good well, for you for being unapologetic. We love yeah. that. You know, yeah, it's, yeah. it's good to have an opinion based on something. I mean, we all have opinions, but as you said earlier, is it a bias or is it fact based? Therein lies the, the small details. Right. And, and, and I, I, I should say,
2: I wanted to say two things. One, I, I really like sports. You know, I jog every morning at sunrise. And uh, when playing basketball, you know, it's often said, keep your eyes on the ball. OK, so that's what, what, what motivates me to keep my eyes on the data and the evidence, not on people. Because if you look at the audience when you play basketball, you will never win. Yeah. OK, right. so keep your eyes on the ball. That's yeah. advice number one that coaches always give the players. Uh, and the second thing is, you know, we can wait for the U.S. government to give us some information about what lies outside the solar system. But that's not their day job. And why should, I mean, the sky is not classified. The oceans are not classified. We can do it ourselves. And that's the approach that I'm taking.
0: So if people want to learn more about yourself or follow you, where can they go find more about Avilo?
2: I have um, a regular set of uh, uh, essays uh, on uh, medium.com. So if you just search for Avilo at medium.com and you can subscribe to it with updates uh, every few days, um, and it's for free. I, I, I don't charge anything. Um, and uh, the latest one was yes, uh, you know, yesterday, last week I had three of them, and so you might uh, enjoy some of those uh, posts. Uh, and other than that, um, uh, there are all the time uh, interviews and profiles, and um, there is now one being prepared by The Guardian. Uh, I just had a photographer yesterday, so there are always reports about the research that we are doing and. You can just follow them but uh, if you go to the medium.com postings you might be up to date uh, better than uh, from reporters
0: awesome yeah you are an inspiration to us we love chatting with yeah. you love to have you back again this is our new series it is strictly a science technology based. we're not scared to go into the world of the unknown a little bit but we want it to be a, a fact-based program not based on myth and legend and lore like a lot of uh, other programs in that realm and It's always refreshing. And, uh, you know, again, we're humbled at the fact that you give us your time. You're a busy guy. I mean, you've got a list of accolades that would fill, you know, a a textbook. So um, really appreciate it. Love to have you back. Marquise. anything before we close out?
1: Absolutely. I just want to say uh, there were so many questions I didn't get to. But with the help of AI... I'm going to have ChatGPT pretend to be you, and I'm going to have this conversation afterwards. <laughs> I would be very
2: interested to see what the answers are. We'll
0: send oh. you the results of that. Yeah, man. Yeah. yeah.
2: <laughs> thank uh, you. Because maybe I can take more vacation time if, if ChatGPT does better. <laughs> Get back out in that ocean and find a big chunk of it. <laughs> <laughs> awesome.
0: Thank you. That, and
2: we'll By the way, I, I, should, I should say that having copies of yourself it's not just a matter of, uh, you know, if something bad happens to me, if a car runs over me, you will have this copy of Chat Uh, It's also the fact that, you know, in the future, if we have copies, uh, we can let them run through our life and uh, see the consequences of different decisions. Right. Suppose you wanted to decide whether to become a scientist or a philosopher. You can have two systems that are copy of copies of yourself, take the two paths and see what happens. Or suppose right. you wanted to date the person suppose there is a copy of that person a copy of you you can let those date and see if anything good comes out of that so there's a lot of heartache and future uh, financial take, take, me simula-
1: take me out of simulation i got too many problems huh?
0: <laughs> awesome well thank you again Avi Loeb. we're going to bring this to uh, today's episode to a close and uh, we want to say thank you to everybody for joining us please subscribe to our channel give us a thumbs up if you like our programming and uh, we are on apple spotify YouTube and the Unex Network. We look forward to seeing you again next week with another fantastic interview. Again, on behalf of Marquise Williams, myself. Big thanks, Abby Lowe. Thank you for joining us and take care.